pain or damage done in the world or despair or fucking beatings. The world ends when you're dead. Until then, you got more punishment in store. Stand like a man and give some back. This is Hardcore Podcast. You just heard Low Life and Endless Punishment from the record, which will come out in 2022, Endless Punishment on 12-gauge Hardcore Records. For those of you who do not know who Low Life is, Punishment, Dysphoria, we learned about these guys back in the late 90s, and they absolutely crushed the Bay Area. So glad to hear some new tracks from our friends. So glad to hear that there's going to be not only a new record, but hopefully some shows. Much love to Shane, Gabe, Abe, and all the fellas. So happy to be able to play this track for you all. For those of you young guys listening, please check out Low Life. They got an um, LP called Nowhere Bound. You can probably find them on YouTube or whatever. One of the hardest fucking California bands and some of the coolest motherfuckers ever. So happy to open this episode with them, and I'm just super excited for them. We'll put links up in the uh, show notes at tihcpodcast.com. Real quick, for those who are doing Patreon, 
I have been so crazy busy on this new job that I have so much stuff to upload, but physically doing 12 and 13 hour, 14 hour days, I, I just haven't had the time to do it. So in about a week, I'm just going to just drop like six or seven things to play catch up. For anyone who wants to support the podcast, you can go to patreon.com slash this is hardcore. In a week or so, we're dropping a ton of stuff, and then I have an actual schedule that goes alongside the episodes. A lot of crazy stuff going on. Haven't been able to keep up. My bad, but thank you for the support. Speaking of support, when we talk about this is hardcore, and we talk about what is hardcore, and we talk about the kind of people that really support the scene, one of the things that is kind of shot and left out is the amount of people in the background. And... Many people so far on the show have fit into this description. Yet I think Paul Conroy eclipses so many different ideas about what you can do within the hardcore scene and how you can make an impact. I mean, this story is absolutely fucking incredible. Paul is just one of these people who just never stops. And once he started getting his teeth into the music scene and he started understanding the business... Truly, the sky's the limit, and he would go way beyond just music into being the CEO of Deirdre Enterprises, creating a skateboard league and helping what would eventually get skateboard into the Olympics somehow. He would work with Haley Paramore on specific brands. He started a sports management company and worked with Michael Bisbean and managed Rampage Jackson. I mean, his story is just absolutely unfucking real. But one of the main takeaways from his entire life story and what he did for music, for hardcore, for American metal, and for metalcore is when we talked about why bands from the 90s couldn't get to that next level. It's because people like Paul Conroy and Tim Moore weren't in place yet to build a bridge out of the underground and into the mainstream with viable financial support from brands and just a higher image that would come later. And his story is fucking incredible. I love the guy. I learned so much from just in this conversation and just in dealing with him. He's another one of these people that no matter where he's at in life, he's an open source and someone who always gives back to the hardcore scene directly, who has done so much to just rise the culture up to a different level. And I cannot wait for you guys to hear this. So let's roll. We are talking to Paul Conroy. Needless to say, in one of these, it's a wonderful life moments. It would take a lot of people to do the work that Paul Conroy has done for hardcore punk, heavy metal, and a variety of industries over the last 25 years. In fact, it's actually incredible if you look at the timeline of all the things he's done and what he's accomplished. And as we start talking about the under the hood of how things get done, we have to talk about who the people are to get things done. And there's no greater than Paul Conway. So, dude, thank you for being on the show, man. Joe, it is uh, my pleasure. Uh, I'm honored to be on the show. So thank you for the invite. It's great to be here. Michael. Like I always say, we got to start at the beginning. And you were born just outside of Philadelphia. Kind of give me a rundown, not only of what it was like growing up at that time, 
what your parents did for a living, and then what kind of music was in your house? Sure. So yeah, I grew up in McKinley, which is uh, it's a couple miles away from Jared School, right? Right off of uh, Jenkintown Road is where I lived. Um, my dad was a mechanic. He owned a shop, a Texaco station on Jenkintown Road, right across from the fire company. He was a volunteer firefighter as well, too. Uh, you know, the awesome thing about growing up in McKinley is uh, it, it was made up of all different races, creeds, uh, socioeconomic classes. And, you know, having gone to the public school in McKinley from like the age of kindergarten, I got exposed to just, you know, all kinds of uh, people that grew up in all different environments and really appreciative of that. Um, I definitely... Uh, Picked up my work ethic from my dad, who was a, a pretty hardcore grinder with his uh, his own business. So it was awesome to be a part of that. I remember working at his shop when I was in elementary school as well, too, which was a really great experience. And because my dad worked so much, I didn't have a ton of time with him outside of his shop. So it was just great for me to connect with him when he was uh, working at his craft. You know, as far as, as music goes, um, I would say my mom definitely had a bit of an influence on my music. You know, I, I think that, you know, for for her age and growing up in the 70s, uh, you know, she was real into the Rolling Stones. I thought the Rolling Stones were cool. Uh, she was in the Beatles. I, I appreciated the Beatles. Um, I was not a huge fan of them. And I think, you know, for me, interestingly, I in elementary school, got real into Kiss and Led Zeppelin and Judas Priest. And I think a lot of that was seeing the older kids in my neighborhood that I thought were like the cooler kids wearing the concert shirts, right, of these groups. And I think, you know, picking up on the imagery of an ACDC or Led Zeppelin concert shirt and then just discovering that music on my own was uh, a pretty amazing experience. And I think for me, Throughout my entire life, I always identified with music that kind of sat outside the crowd from my circle of friends. And my brother was the same way. So like my younger brother and I were really like partners in our music journey from the very beginning. Now, at some point when you are in, was, would it be high school or would it be closer to college that you start going not just into like that kind of heavy metal like when were you kind of aware of like more of the things that you would eventually start working on later in your um post-college like what was the music when you got beyond like the biggest names you know like where where did you link up with that was it high school or was it a little bit later well i would actually say uh my my journey into hip-hop which started when i was in like seventh grade is when i really got into discovering artists that were a bit off the beaten path. You know, I remember like back in the day, uh, Power 99 FM in Philly had a, a show called Street Beat that played like on Sunday afternoons. And I remember like my brother and I listening to Street Beat and just making cassette tapes of hip hop artists. And from, I would say, seventh grade through like probably my sophomore, I guess my freshman year in college, I was damn near like exclusively into hip hop. And then when I was a freshman in college, uh, one of my, my good friends was really into both 
hip hop. He was from the West Coast, and he introduced me to West Coast hip hop, but he was also into metal as well, too. He was a huge Judas Priest fan. So I, re- okay. I rediscovered okay. Judas Priest through him. And then right around that time, Judas Priest released the Painkiller record, right? Which and is like the best. Which That's is like the, the best, best record. And if you may remember, on that record, they toured and they played the Spectrum with Megadeth, right? Yeah, the Clash of the Titans tour. My mom took me to that. So it was actually, well, the Clash of the Titans was Megadeth, Slayer, and Anthrax, right? Oh, no, was that, was that Priest? That Judas Priest was one of, Judas, because that was the year that Allison Chains got booed off stage, was the year Slayer headlined. That's and there right. was one where Judas Priest was on it as well. It was, it was actually it was Judas Priest, Megadeth, and Testament, right? Yeah. And I knew of Megadeth, but I wasn't like super familiar with their music. And I was floored, like just the whole style, their energy. And it was like, you know, their look and their presentation was like very different than Judas Priest. And I just, I really connected with it. And I went out and bought Rust in Peace shortly thereafter. And like that kind of sent me down the rabbit hole of underground metal. And I would say when like my taste in underground metal crossed into hardcore. So I like through my college years, I was like metal, hard metal, hip hop, metal, hip hop. And then I got a job. This is a funny story. I got a job in Connecticut after college. This is like end of 1992. And I would drive up to Connecticut on Monday morning and I would drive back on Friday nights to Philly. And there is a station, which I'm sure you're aware of, WSOU, right? Seton Hall Fire Radio. And so I would be driving home on Friday night. SOU would have their top 10 countdown. And like that was where I learned about Biohazard and Quicksand and Life of Agony. And like that station and that journey from Connecticut to Philadelphia profoundly impacted my taste in music and ultimately my life. What's crazy is that Seton Hall uh, Pirate Radio still actually is active now. It's awesome. <laughs> it's insane. So I wonder, now you, you didn't go to college specifically for the arts, in fact. So you were, after college, what do you think was your focus when you first got out of college and then what started landing you towards what would be your profession? Like how did that journey go from, okay, I got this degree. I'm not going to use it. Where, how do you, where, where does that go? I mean, it's, it's such a um, random story. Um, but I, I, I love telling the story. So like I was an academic disaster in college. Like, you know, I, I started off, trying to become an engineer because a couple of my cousins uh, were engineers and doing really well. And I saw them kind of evolve into like having like really nice lives in their twenties working in engineering. But like, I, so that's why like I went to school to become an engineer. I was horrible at it. So like I was on the verge of failing out. I basically graduated with Villanova from a degree in mathematics. And the reason I landed mathematics It was like the one major where I could like transfer most of my credits and I could graduate in like four and a half years with summer school versus being there for seven years. So after that, like I graduated college and I was definitely like a lost soul. 
I had no idea what to do. And I started looking for sales positions because just people around me said I was fairly good with people. And I'd worked in construction as a laborer during college. And, and I, I appreciated my time working in construction. And the job I got outside of, uh, outside of college was doing sales, uh, selling like commercial grade doors and architectural hardware. And like I started doing that for a couple of years after college. And while I was making pretty good money, I was miserable. Like I, and I, I felt super lost. Like it's like, okay, you know, I come from a working class family. People are excited that I've got like this job. I've got a company car, but like, I'm not excited. I'm not happy. And I was just spinning my wheels. And a guy that worked in our warehouse was in a band. And like, I would show up to work on Monday morning and I'd have like bruises on my face from like dancing at shows. And this guy knew I was always at shows. And he was just like, hey, like, you're good with people. You're super passionate about music. Like, do you want to help my band out? And I'm like, well, what does that mean? He's like, well, helping us get shows in Philadelphia, maybe helping us get shows outside of Philadelphia. And so like, that was like a baby step in the direction of finding my career path. But like Joe, and, and I'm sure you can relate to this, like growing up where I grew up, like the music industry didn't exist, right? That was like a fantasy. Like I had my love of music and then I had my work and I didn't see those things connected. And then when this guy gave me the opportunity to help his band, I started just helping out and I was going to like JC Dobbs and the Kyber a few nights a week and just doing everything I could to like build relationships and learn about the music industry. I thought I had a shot to make it years before that would be a reality financially. So like I was a couple of years into like managing local and regional bands. I quit my job to try and do it full time and was just running up enormous debt. So like I'm in my mid twenties at this point and I'd actually owned a townhouse and I ended up like having to like sell my townhouse, lost a bunch of money, moved in with my parents. I ran up like $50,000 in credit card debt. And I was just like heading down this deep hole of struggle trying to figure out how to make it work in the music industry. But the interesting thing about that struggle at that time, as brutally hard as it was, I was on a path that made me feel good, right? So like the stress of putting together, you know, how I could live from one month to the next financially was a more manageable stress for me than like, I'm working this job and I hate it, and I don't know what to do about it. So um, it was pretty high risk, kind of how I went about it. And I wouldn't recommend my exact way of going about it to others. But, you know, thankfully, uh, a random conversation with a guy I worked with just opened up enough of a lane for me to understand that there is a way to work and feel excited and fulfilled about your work. And once I got a little taste of that, 
there was no turning back, right? And that was kind of like that taste has what has driven me through everything that, you know, you and I have, have talked about over the years ever since. What's really interesting about not only your injection into the music scene was that I don't think that at any time too much more forward in the, in the, in the timeline, you would have had the same kind of opportunities because in that specific time, when you're bringing up JC Dobbs and the Kyber, we're talking about the no man's land where it was still all independent for the most part, you know, like the biggest players at that time was uh, electric factory concerts, but like Brian Dilworth wasn't even really doing live nation yet. And so, so much of these things that you brought up when you touched on building relationships, it was all organic. And like you had, like you said, you had to be in the rooms to make the connections. And I think if let's say this is 15 years down the line, you're meeting five people who work for three companies as opposed to having building these individual separate relations, be it Tim Bohr, John Hampton, Brian Dilworth. And, and for those listening, these are all the people that basically took Philadelphia from being the place no one played unless there was like nothing going on and made one of the most vibrant night lives and like shows and some of the coolest venues and smallest venues. So Paul, you basically came in at this like ripe time as the truck started to grow, yeah. Kyber Pass. I mean, for those listening who are like, it's a restaurant, Kyber had fucking the Deftones play, you know, like <laughs> they had yeah. so many cool shows at some point. And I think it's integral to your story that you said that you, you kind of got into sales by chance of having a good social um, makeup and the ability to talk to people. But um, just without getting too into the weeds, how was it showing up, not on day one being like, hi, I represent this band. And how much has that shifted now to where everything's basically email related? Man, it's what, what a difference. And you know, what's an interesting part of my story in which was a huge unlock for me. So there were a couple of years in Philly where they had like a Philadelphia music conference, right? Yeah. And I got like a part-time job to put together panels for the Philadelphia music conference, which just gave me the ability just to reach out to people, right. And see if I could get them to participate, uh, in panels. And I, you know, I remember putting one together around, you know, metal and there were, I, man, I, there were, there was some level I met might've been a part of that panel if I remember correctly. But then the one thing that I did, which like ended up becoming a huge part of like how my future would play out, we put on a showcase at the Kyber Pass, speaking of, and like I did that showcase and like I had Fahrenheit play the showcase and like, and I had them play the showcase because like I loved the band so much and Sam Black Church was on it and I forget a couple of the other brand bands, but like I basically reached out to strong management. So I got their phone number, right? Their phone number to their office was on the CD sleeve and I just cold called those guys and talk to them about me and what I was doing in Philadelphia. And can we get Fahrenheit to play this show? And like 25 years later, like I'm still super tight with Vaughn, Kenny and Armando, and we're still exploring business together. So to your point, like the process of like 
putting myself out there and cold calling people and really going out of my way to build rapport with them. I remember like we had like Fahrenheit hang out at like my brother's apartment in Conchahokan like before the show and like getting to know those guys there. And like I overextended myself to try and build meaningful rapport with people back then. John Hampton is another one, man. I have so much love for John Hampton. Like I didn't have a lot of money back then. He would put me on guest lists for all the shows. Uh, he, you know, anywhere he could support me, he did. And like, these are just relationships that, you know, you had to build one brick at a time, right? But that process of building them one brick at a time is why they mean so much so many years later. And as far as like how that, like how it's different today, um, I still try and go out of my way to build rapport, you know, like I, it's just, it's so deeply ingrained in me and I've gotten so much out of it, right. From like, you know, going from music to skateboarding to like, you know, building businesses and beauty and like all these uh, different industries, you just got to get out on the front lines and have conversations with people and like be real about your follow-up. And if you can help someone help them. Right. And you know, this is maybe it's um, real simple stuff, but it's like that simple stuff is like just connected to my DNA and where I sit today. Well, I think, I think an element that really can't be overlooked is what you said. If, if you have the ability to help give it, and I mean, countless people, you know, we, we already talked about in the story, you know, um, for those who are listening, uh, strong management, Kenny, Ron Lewis, had a hu- uh, Vaughn Lewis had a huge part in every one of your favorite hardcore bands in the 1990s. That was like the management dream team from VOD and so many others. And the thing is, is as you link up with people, obviously some people are in positions where they have the ability to help. And that's the foundation of the whole social commerce of everything that we do instead of being like gatekeep. I know, you know, I could help you, Paul, but I'm a prick and I don't want to, or why give away to somebody I don't know. The cycle continues as, as people come in and you can help somebody. And I think that, you know, we had Tim Boer on the show and we've had other, you know, Chris bridge nine, but so many others on the show who have spoken like, yeah, you know, like if someone comes and has the opportunity, but you know, needs a little push, you got to give it to them. Um, early on, what do you think was your biggest leg up or push from somebody as you were trying to like get deeper into this world? So early on, we talking early on, well, I'll tell you what it was, man. Um, I think a defining moment for me, and I, this may be a little bit later on the early on side, so we can backtrack if you want. But, you know, I ended up getting a gig uh, being an A&R rep, right, at, at Roadrunner Records. And I sucked as an A&R rep, right? Like, I'm deeply passionate about music. Um, when I was at Roadrunner, like, I, saw, I tried to sign E-Town Concrete, tried to sign Lamb of God, couldn't get those deals done. The couple of deals I got done, I, I was able – we were not commercially successful with those artists. There's actually – an artist from Philly named Cinch that I signed to Roadrunner that ended up playing like some hardcore shows, I would say along the way, like in the suburbs in Lansdale. And they ended up getting managed by a guy named Larry Mazur, who is also like a Philly music scene legend. 
uh, Larry and Tim and I were the co-founders of the Sounds of the Underground. So Larry was managing Cinch, right? And Larry and I got to be very close. And he knew, like, I wasn't happy at Roadrunner. And at that time, Joe, I literally was like, it's a wrap for me in the music industry. Like, I've had this run, and I can't do Like, I suck as an A&R rep. Like, I don't feel good. Like, the position of an A&R inside of a big record company where you don't have the influence across, like, all the aspects of, like, artist development, I felt very, like, stifled. And I thought it was done. And Larry and I had a conversation and he was like, hey, your a is not your thing for sure. He's like, but I think you would be an amazing manager. And he said, if you want to consider giving management a shot, he's like, I can't pay you even a fraction of what you're making at Roadrunner. But if you give it a shot, we'll give it everything we got to get you a book of business, right? And at the time, like we had just got, my wife and I had just gotten married. We'd just gotten a house and literally like he opened up a credit line for me that was about 25% of what I was making at Roadrunner. But I was so connected with this, him giving me this shot and him being a guy that was like a Philly guy as well too. I was like, yeah, let's do it, Larry. And like Joe, like I went into it like, what am I going to do? And within a matter of like a month, so this is like spring of 2003, right? So like within a matter of a month, I was managing Lamb of God on earth and every time I die. And like I, when I tell you I was at the brink of disaster, I was like sitting in my own pain. And then Larry reached out to me and I took a big risk financially and it changed my life. I think as it relates to like, a lot of the artists that like and people that, that you know you and I have worked with over the years, that was probably the defining moment in my journey that um, if I didn't pay attention to that opportunity, if I didn't take the risk, I'd probably not be here talking with you today. I mean that that in itself is just fantastic. I do I want to we're gonna drop back just so that there's context. Yes. Well, I don't we're not gonna get too deep into the weeds. Yeah. So at some point, at some point between the mid to late nineties, you're working with bands, you're building names up. What was the, what was the intro just to get into the A&R foot? Like, to, like, was it just that Roadrunner was having a turnover as to different looks they were looking for, for the roster? What was the, what was the opening that got you in the A&R foot in that path? This is, um, this is a good, a good backtrack. So I'm glad you're, you're taking us back here. So to go back even further, I'm managing bands in Philadelphia. I'm not making money. I did the Philadelphia Music Conference. Like, and, you know, that was uh, a great way for me to build relationships. But, like, here I am climbing through my mid-20s, and um, I'm just getting deeper and deeper into debt. Uh, it created a huge rift with my parents and I. Uh, I mean, my dad and I were horribly at odds. You know, he, he didn't understand. You know, to this day, my dad still has, like, dirty hands from being a mechanic. And back then he didn't understand how I could give up a good paying job, right. For a fantasy. Like he was just like, it, it was, it was pretty gnarly. Right. And, you know, thankfully him and I have long since overcome that riff, but I was at the very bottom, 
right? And my relationship with my parents was at its worst. And like my dad, my dad was just like, hey, um, if you don't give up on this, like you can't live in our house. And I said to my dad, I'm prepared to live in my car if I have to, right? And that was like the bottom of it. And so like he went upstairs and him and my, my mom were talking and I was downstairs having a pretty tough time with it all. And my dad came downstairs and he handed me a $5,000 check. And he's like, look, if you take this check, like you got to figure this out. He's like, you, you just, you got to figure it out. Right. And I had no choice. I'm like, I'll figure it out. And like, and for him to give me that amount of money at that time, I like, God, the value of that money at that time, it was crazy that he did that for me. Right. So I took that money and, you know, I bought myself a few more months, but here we go again. It's like, you know, six months later and I still have like no opportunity for a future and a friend of mine. And so like I'm at the end and a friend of mine from Atlantic Records calls me up. So this is like 1999. Right. And he's like, hey, he's like Kid Rock's manager is coming to town and Kid Rock has exploded and his manager is in desperate need of help. Um, I think I can get you an interview. Can you be up in my office tomorrow to meet with him? His manager was living in Chicago, right? So I took the train up to New York City and I went and met with this guy, Steve Hutton. And um, I thought he was an awesome guy. And look at the time, just to give you like a sense of perspective, like Kid Rock was selling like, a couple hundred thousand records a week. Right? It was insane what was happening. Um, he was a dick, by the way, but that's a separate conversation. <laughs> the manager was awesome. He was a dick. Um, so I had this interview with Steve and he's like, look, I need help. You seem great. Like, do you want to come out and work with me? And we talked about like what he was able to pay me. And I was like, I, I'll be out there next week but i was like look man like i can't afford to live like i like with what you're paying me like I, it's great and i'll take it but like i can't afford to live in an apartment he's like you can live on my couch i was like all right great and so like i'd just been getting serious with my wife at the time and um i said to her i'm like look i this is my shot i've got to go do this and we had agreed that i would get out there and once i kind of bailed myself out of the financial hole i was in she would then move out there with me. So then I, I moved out to Chicago um, yeah, late 90s, and I was basically doing day-to-day -day work for Kid Rock's management. I had my little roster as well, too. And it gave me unbelievable exposure to aspects of the music industry that I never expected to see, nor did I ever want to see again. Um, you know, the, it was crazy, like, because of Kid Rock's stature, the artists that were coming in wanting to be managed by this guy, Steve Hutton, and he was passing on big artists left and right because of his loyalty to Kid Rock, only to get fired by Kid Rock a year later or two years later. But it was, wow. it was working within Kid Rock's management company. I had built a pretty good relationship with Monty Connor from Roadrunner. I was like a huge fan of like all the Roadrunner artists. Like, so him, me getting to know him was like a dream. And Monty's like, hey, we're gonna launch a publishing venture and perhaps 
you could run our publishing venture. And I thought that was a real interesting opportunity. And, you know, Monty and I had very similar tastes and I ultimately decided I wanted to take that shot. So I ended up taking the gig working at Roadrunner and it started off in publishing, but then I'd say six months into it, um, for reasons I still don't fully understand, like Roadrunner decided they wanted me to be an A&R rep. They wanted me to work on the record label side. So then I made that transition to working on the record label side. So I think, you know, just to kind of connect the tissue on all of this as it relates to relationships, right? So I just became very close to a guy at Atlantic Records and like he thought of me and got me that job opportunity. And then while I was working with Kid Rock's management company, I became close with Monty Connor. And then he created this opportunity for me as well too, right? So, you know, so much of it uh, was really just about forging really strong relationships. And to this day, I still have a lot of love for Steve Hutton, who was the guy that hired me back then. One of the things you touched on, um, you said, um, exposure well, one of our early guests Ernie said something that I, I say so often now on these shows he said with the correct access and exposure is really one of the key founding ways that people can get further along in things and I think that's exactly what you're talking about is access and exposure and I, and I mean as it segues into your management foray I don't think that you would have been able to take on those bands without Steve Hutton and without that moment. And that's like, that's that access and exposure point where by chance, here you are, you're down on your last buck. You're trying to make something happen with this girl, but this guy is giving the opportunity. And that's another moment where it's like someone who doesn't have, I don't know. Is it the, like a gambler's gambit or is it just like the drive to say, fuck it. I'll live on your couch. I'll take this experience. And it's at right just there is a, a like a great linking point between how you got from point A to point B. Well, Joe, here here's like the magic of 2003, right? Like I'd spent years. Oh, real quick, real quick, because, yeah. because we're talking about 2003. Yeah, it would be remiss if you don't give me the how you walked in and said E Town Concrete's the band. And then how they didn't listen to you. And then the Renaissance came out a year later. Just give me that. And then we'll get into 2003 and how you shifted into management. I'll, I'll say this, man. Um, I, it was like the worst response I ever got in an A&R meeting, right? Like when I brought them in and like, so it was off of those demos, by the way, right? So like, it was probably, I would say I presented E-Town Concrete probably in 2002, right? So it was even like, it was, you know, probably a year to a year and a half before the Renaissance came out. And I thought that record was awesome. And I'd actually went down, I flew down to like Augusta, Georgia and uh, E-Town and Hatebreed were like on tour. And I just went to see them down there and hang out with Ant and the guys. And I was like, hey, like, you know, we're going to take a run at this. And like, I got such a cold response in the A&R meeting. I remember like a guy even like laughing at me. You know what's funny too, Joe? I, I made a post about Ant 
within the last year. And like, I tagged Roadrunner on it. And it was like something like, <laughs> I told you, you fucked up. It was really funny. Wow. But it was like, it was this, it was, it, that happened. And then I tried to sign Lamb of God for a second time. It was like back to back. And even the, the owner of Roadrunner bet me $500 that Lamb of God would never sell over 100,000 records. That's how Ooh. like, and like back then, Roadrunner was very like, like Nickelback was happening, right? That's so, exactly it. They didn't see anything else besides Nickelback. Except for Monty. Monty and Gitter, right? Those and yeah, Carl, of course, like there were a, a group of people that were waving the flag for the right kind of music for sure. Um, but... Yeah, I, I got an aggressive uh, decline on E-Town Concrete. And why I'm glad you brought that up again, what I realized when I was going to go back into management with Larry, I was like, you know what? I am, I would say up to that point, like I would go to like hardcore shows or metal shows, but then I had like my music industry job, right? They were kind of separate. And I was like learning a ton about the music industry over here. And I was building relationships in hardcore and metal, but I wasn't doing business there. And when I got into management with Larry, I'm like, I am, I am going to manage the shit that I love that I'm deeply passionate about. And I'm either going to find a way to make business out of this or I'll get bounced out, but at least I'll get bounced out of this industry on my own terms. Right. And it was that shift in mentality of like really going all in and like fully fusing my passions with my business is where I started to see growth. Now, one of the things that gets talked about a lot on the show, and that's, this is where the key component of where Paul Conroy is going to come in and shine here for us. <laughs> so many times we've spoke about management in a way where until you just said it, it didn't click. You had to find you're you're trying to find the business to make it like a thing for these bands. And I feel like at times some of the less prominent kind of half-ass management that comes into hardcore comes in, they take 15% off of stuff they're not bringing in. Yeah. But you came in at a specific time with specific bands where there was a a gap. Yeah. Obviously, from like the late 90s into the early 2000s. Bands who were traditionally not ready or not seen as viable in the metallic world were just getting too big for the smaller hardcore shows. And this is where Every Time I Die, this is Lamb of God, this is Shadows Fall. This is this weird kind of like golden hour where these bands are coming out of the underground and really they kind of need some kind of fostering to become the band that they are now. And I imagine this is where you segue in. And so kind of go over what it was like to pick these bands up from the underground and walk them into a bigger, you know, arena. Yeah. And you know, there's a single show that I feel like represents like a pivot point in that transition. And I imagine you were there. Um, it was uh, when lamb of God and every time I died on earth played Palanca park in like, yep early 2003, right? Basically, the OzFest second stage played Palanca Park, right? Like, Salem. <laughs> and a year later, right? They're the second stage. And like there was, and I remember being at that show 
being like, holy, sh like th this is literally about to blow. Right. And then that evolved into like the headbangers ball tour, which was like lamb of God, shadows fall, kill switch, engage Unearth, and God forbid, which like set up the Ozfest second stage. And I think, you know, for, for me, to your point, Joe, my, my mentality with, you know, those artists and everyone I've worked with back then was like, okay, how can we create unique value, right, for these artists? And it really, and it was such a team effort, right, with Borer and myself and strong management, like trading ideas wherever we could. You know, that, that Headbangers Ball Tour, there were 2,000 people at the Electric Factory seeing that tour at a time when none of those bands were like, you know, necessarily like worth, you know, five to 600 on their own. Right. It was like literally the sum of the parts. And we worked so damn hard to get MTV to buy into supporting this underground movement because headbangers ball had just returned. Right. It was just starting to happen with Jamie and like, that was like, I think an example of, okay, let's have whatever kind of strategy and value that we can create for MTV. Let's build credibility with them. Like, let's see how much promotion we can get from them. And that was like something that like, when it was done, we created something that like elevated the scene. Right. And like all Absolutely. of those, yeah, all of those bands brought along so many bands with them. I mean, that, that was like the last big tour on Earth. Well, Unearth actually went out on the second Headbangers Ball tour with Hatebreed and Damage Plan, which was the following spring, which was right before the Oncoming Storm was released. And like when that Oncoming Storm record came out, it crushed, man. It did like 15,000 records the first week, which was like unheard of coming from where they came from. So it was, I, um, like I wasn't like a plug and play kind of guy, right? Like Bohr and I used to have the craziest conversations around festival tours and how we integrate brands. I mean, just wild, ambitious shit, but we stayed committed to certain ideas long enough that they became real, right? Like the sounds of the underground, right? Ozfest 2004 happened all of our bands were on the second stage. And then ultimately we're like, we've got to create a bigger platform for our artists. Yeah. And that was like, that was how we ended up coming up with the idea for sounds of the underground. And again, that was, that was a scenario where like lamb of God could take ownership of a tour that did four to 5,000 tickets, 6,000 tickets in certain markets and we created that platform for them because it wasn't there for us. Now, when I, th I think about this and, and this is just like context to how I've always looked at this. And I mean, you got to remember we talk about unearth they are like bands that would play halls with us. Yeah. Stay on my mom's floor. Yeah. All of these bands always had the talent. And this is something that I've said 10 years. You could say the same thing about the, the first 10 years of the metallic hardcore stuff. The difference was there was no foundation. And I feel specifically the symbiosis between you and Tim Boer and the strong guys built in the early two thousands, what wasn't there 
to elevate hardcore bands or should I say hardcore sized bands to a higher level. And I think it just took refinement because, you know, Boar and Strong, they had the VODs, they had the Mad Balls, they had these downsets, they had these bands in their hand, even the Roadrunner uh, hardcore bands, they had all these bands in their hands, but there wasn't that connecting point in the tracks to bring them out of the underground and a part of what would become the next space of American metal. And I think it's important to acknowledge that it just, again, is timing and having good friendships and relationships and having the ability to kind of trade off ideas where you and Tim could build this thing. So a band like Unearth, a band like Lamb of God could become what they are now as far as American metal bands. Yeah. And I, you know, when I think about the nineties and I think about like VOD or I think about quicksand as an example, it was like one of my favorite bands from the nineties. Like I, I wonder like what would have happened the experience in the mid nineties that I had in the mid two thousands with Tim and Stroll, like what would have happened at that point? Right. Cause like, you know, when I, there was a moment in the nineties where like you were hearing, you know, sick of it all, on WDRE, the alternative radio stage of OzFest. Like to this day, like I, that's just one of the most powerful live shows I've ever seen, right? And I, I could never understand why those artists didn't get bigger. Like, was it, was it like the music? Was it, I thought those bands were massive and maybe it was just because I was a fan back then, but those bands all felt massive to me And as I got into the industry and I understood like what the record sales were like, I was like, wow, like how come they're not bigger helping drive the scene, the industry in the mid two thousands was at that same place in the mid nineties. Well, that's actually interesting in episode, I think it was 25 or 27. Me and Richie had this conversation and in so many in previous episodes, including time we go over in this podcast with different guests how hardcore did not have the viable commercial value at the time when they, all these bands were hitting these high watermarks for hardcore yet culturally and you touched on all of them, especially quicksand because they kind of came out sonically able to ride high with all of that heavier grunge stuff in the first half of the nineties. And I have to believe it was not having someone like Tim Bohr who had gone from being a hardcore booking agent to booking these metal bands and then not having strong management who had like, you know, you guys kind of all came up as those bands were coming up. Yep. And I think you guys all hit a stride in that early two thousands where you were able to elevate the next layer of bands to a higher commercial success. So I think it's, it's in part, it's kind of like a railroad where the rest of the tracks weren't built yet. Yeah. So some of these bands only could go so far yeah. and you guys were kind of like, fuck, we got to fix. And, and and that's a huge, that's a huge impact. And I know it, it may sound crazy to you, but like from my perspective, you know, I saw the first warp tour. It was fucking insane. And it was so fucking punk rock. And actually I tell people all the time, like, yeah, there's warp tour where like 15 year old little girls are at that. But the first warp tour, people were getting kicked in the face with doc Martens yeah. and there were skinheads and it was fucking nuts. And what you talked about with in, in integrating brands, I mean, 
Sounds of the Underground was fantastic. And in fact, you guys actually exposed me to Behemoth. I knew about them through metal magazines, but I don't think. Uh, one second. Abel, get the fuck out of here. My dog decided to stand right next to me and start eating a bone. <laughs> sorry, sorry about that. It's that was okay. really annoying me. That's like my ADHD. It probably wouldn't even have picked up, but I would be fucking crazy. Like, shut up. That's <laughs> um, uh, Yeah, like the you exposed Behemoth and Terror in the same like level plane, and that's that's classic Timbor. Uh, Vaughn and Kenny, like, oh yeah, we got terror. We got it's all adds in, yeah. and something that you said that I wanted you to kind of talk about. So, I believe you guys hit a fucking home run with Sounds of the Underground, and then it was like you got to tell me, Mayhem Fest was basically Monster and Kevin Lyman being like, well, now that you've done this, we're going to take it over and do it better. Is that how that worked? Yeah, it was. So it was Rockstar, right? Rockstar. Oh, Rockstar. I'm sorry. I, man, there, there was, um, I think, the biggest year of mayhem on the side stages. One of the side stages was Cannibal Corpse, Behemoth, Job for a Cowboy. And I managed all those bands, right? I literally, like, negotiated the entire And it was, and it, look, and, what, and that, that moment in time had a huge influence on how I looked at things moving forward. You know, we did have sponsors as part of Sounds of the Underground, like, you know, we had um, Rockstar Video Games, not the energy drink. We got a little bit of money from them. We ended up getting um, some money from a smaller energy drink, like No Fear Energy. Like we, I thought we were Hot Topic ended up being like a sponsor early on. That was like one of the first things they ever sponsored. And I thought we were doing a good job integrating brands into like an underground music scene and doing it in a way that I felt like was cool. Um, like, I'll give you an example. You'll, you'll appreciate this as a touring artist. You know, Hot Topic was like, how can we create a cool experience for like our, our most hardcore of our consumers? And we created barbecue, right? And we had Hot Topic give us a bunch of money and we set up this amazing catering lunch every day and Hot Topic got to bring back a handful of contest winners, but then our artists got to benefit from having amazing meals, which, you know, on a festival tour is not like a common practice, right? So like yeah. coming up with really cool ways to have like brands bring value to the artist authentically while creating a great experience for like their consumers. And I thought we were doing a good job. And then Mayhem came in with like huge checks from Rockstar Energy Drink <laughs> and just stomped us out. Uh, and I love Kevin Lyman and I love John Reese. And I don't even know if like they were even looking at what we were doing, but there's no doubt that the rise of Mayhem signaled the end of Sounds of the Underground. Would you say that that's uh, a common or just a natural occurring thing in what in be it music and then later on, sometimes something comes along and it's got a lot of uh, push within the, like the culture and then somebody comes along with more money and can kind of build off it, make it bigger. Is that something that you see often, be it music and beyond? Is that, and do you think that's organic or is that planned by like bigger companies saying, well, they did good, but we can come in and take this over now that's a proven um, idea. I think it happens. Um, I think it happens 
just randomly or organically sometimes. And I do think it happens real calculated at times as well, too. Like I'll give you a brand example that I thought was fascinating to watch. You know, before Beats by Dre happened, there was a brand named Skull Candy, which was kind oh, yeah. of yeah, like they were like the first ones to like try and bring lifestyle and culture to like headphones, right? And audio. And they were doing deals with music artists and they were doing deals with like skateboarders. And I like Beats by Dre just came in and stomped them into oblivion, right? Like all of the athletes they worked with, Beats by Dre was just bigger. Everything was bigger and better. And the, the brand look was cleaner and more impressive. So I have seen it a lot. It does happen a lot. Um, and I do think, yeah, some, um, you know, I, I think that with mayhem in retrospect, I think that Kevin um, was interested in creating a platform for heavier artists that perhaps he didn't think at the time were a good fit budget and they wanted to target that space and rather harmoniously kevin and john reese and rockstar put together mayhem and, and i you know many of my artists got a lot of value through that tour so and 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 to this day as we're talking about it when i think of like a business opportunity i was a part of that i felt amazing about that i, I like when it just didn't work i was stunned like I thought Sounds of the Underground was it, right? Like seeing, you know, walking backstage and seeing Behemoth and Terror hang out and Cannibal Corpse and like seeing, you know, Madball in front of those audiences. I, like I thought it was this incredible um, collision of different aspects of underground music that made for an amazing experience all over America. Um, you know, the shows in Philly, the shows in, at the uh, Starland Ballroom in the parking lot, were some of the best shows to this day I've ever seen, um, but it just wasn't meant to be, man. But what it did, Joe, it gave so many artists a platform for growth that I think still benefits them to this day. I think that today, Behemoth, Cannibal Corpse, and Terror are still reaping the benefits of Sounds of the Underground from 15 years ago. Oh, unequivocally. In fact, the age demographic in the first two or three warp tours shifted, you know, the average person was 20 to 25 years old. Yeah. And that would shift dramatically within a couple of years where like the older people at the warp tours were in the early twenties and it was like teens, to early twenties. So the need for something points at a specific time where the growth in all them bands, I mean, you're talking about when every one of these bands was doing great. Now you had said um, platform for growth. And I think that you happen to just be somebody who comes in with this insane possible to not mention that you're the one who gave Anthony Martini from E-Town Concrete, who is now an amazingly successful manager, a CEO of Royalty Exchange. You have an eye for talent that goes beyond just bands. In fact, at some point, you were not only just thinking about like, how do I build these bands, but you're constantly building new businesses and alliances and kind of want you to go over not only the alliances you guys made with Good Fight, but the yeah. direction that you wanted to take it when you started. And obviously, we all know its impact on hardcore now. Yeah, so Good Fight 
the, the idea of good fight started towards uh, the end of, you know, Carl and I's um, working within Ferret. So in 2006, we sold uh, a significant state controlling interest of Ferret to the Warner Music Group, right? And at the time, our business was largely, um, it was largely a record label. We had a couple of management clients, like Unearth was like, you know, kind of our main management client then. And then we had the Sounds of the Underground tour. But as time grew and there were challenges within the recorded music industry, Carl and I decided together, like, all right, he's going to lead the record label. I've got to start building out the management company so we can become a bit more diversified with our business. So that led to, you know, starting to bring in people like Ant or people like Biggie. And at the end of 2009, we'd hit an impasse with the Warner Music Group with Ferret. And basically, um, we were locked up in a pretty gnarly contract with them. And, this, and we, it was really important that like the people inside of the company had an opportunity to move forward together. So as part of our deal with the Warner Music Group, they ended up taking the record label Ferret. We moved forward and launched Good Fight, which at that time, we took all of our management clients, all of our team, and then we started a new record label, which was Good Fight, and then really built out the management business. And at that time, we had, you know, there was Biggie, there was Chuck Andrews, Tim Z as well, too. And oh, yeah. And I would say, Joe, that from 2007 to 2010, really starting with Ant, I became more vested and passionate about developing people on the industry side. Like, I, like that, to me, watching Ant, you know, be able to lock in Terror or Behemoth and watching him grow in hell, when he left our company, he started as an intern with me, right? He was just like, man, give me a shot. Like, I, like I, just, I, I just want a shot, right? And he went from intern to being an assistant, like in our office, like he, his desk was in our kitchen and like it was right next to my office. Then he became like day-to-day -day manager. And like when he left our company, like I was, I, I was happy for him because he was like on his path. And the same thing with Biggie, like to this day, man, like, you know, when Biggie and I first met, he was TMing 18 Visions in 2000. And he used to torture me as a tour manager. Like he was like, he so looked out for the bands that at times he was like at odds with management. It was me, right? So we started off not being amazing with each other. And then we both gave each other a chance and I just ended up loving the guy like ATV when they would come out on tour, they would sleep in my basement and it was at Warp Tour, probably 2006, 2007. Like I, I remember having a talk with Biggie and I'm like, man, like you got to get off the road. Like you're going to be a killer as a manager. And I tried to like sell him on to moving to the East Coast. And he's like, hey, like, I'm down with being a manager. Like, let's do this. No fucking way. Am I leaving Orange County? But then we started working together. And, you know, I see Biggie every week now. We train jujitsu together. And, like, just watching him develop young talent as well, too, 
I have to say, man, when all said and done, or even like, you know, Tim Bohr's son, Seb, worked with me for a year and a half. And I have to say that like watching is every bit as exciting to me as whatever legacy I've created with any artist I've worked with. Before we get into more of your accomplishments, we just spoke on via Anthony. Um, Tim Z grew up around the corner from me. He's a couple years younger than me, but he's a Philly boy. Yeah. Uh, I love Biggie so much. And like I said, is uh, he would never make it on the East coast. He loves the beach, <laughs> and, but like, what what kind of common denominators did you see in this early talent pool of managers? And what did you infuse into them? Like, hey, if we're going to do this, these are the things you need to do. Yeah. Was it physical? Like, these are our tasks? Or were you talking in bigger concepts as you're teaching these guys? You know, I um, I think what they all had, which I appreciated, was um, grit capacity right like you know, the, like those guys like you know tim and Ann and biggie like and chuck like those guys want to make it regardless right uh, and i so i really connected with grit and tenacity I, I really connected with um a bit of an underdog mentality right people wanting to have a shot i mean i feel like you know every, god i feel like i'm i i'm a never-ending my journey is an underdog's journey so I, I think that those are things I looked for. And I think things that I tried to um, instill wherever I could was like discipline and follow through, right? Like, you know, really, um, I think the more organized and the more disciplined you can be with your business, the better. And I think like following up with people, relationship building, um, I think those are like, you know, kind of some of the, the key um, key reasons for my growth that I would try to have instilled in them. Uh, and, you know, those guys, I mean, they really like, you know, they took whatever they got from our relationship and they just carried it so much further, you know, and, that, and I, that's, that's amazing to me. Um, and like, for me, I think the reason I would focus on discipline and follow through in the very beginning, right? And I, I realized that the more I became disciplined, the more I followed through, the more I'd follow through on things, like the better, the more I'd see success, right? And, you know, ultimately, man, when it comes to really big ideas, you know, you, those ideas are going to get pushed in many different directions over, over time, but just sticking with it, like, you know, hell, man, like, I'm sure like your process with this is hardcore or even this podcast, like blooming out of this is hardcore, like following through, following through. And then like, you look back and you're like, Whoa, like, like, look where I'm at. Like, man, like we've made some progress here. Right. So I think that's it. One of the things that I think that I'm going to stay with is the, the follow through is something that, like I, I came in very gritty, you know, I was, I, I was asked, I was asked if I would help, you know, help Sean with security stuff at the church. And then a couple of times he's like, why don't you just do these shows? Like some of these shows. And then I remember being shown by Sean Excel sheets. And it was like baby steps, like really rudimentary. This is how I do this. Yeah. And no one explained to me 
some of the social business etiquette. And I'm having this conversation for people listening. Like, if you're going to be a hardcore promoter, you're going to send emails a lot. And it took forever me to follow the cadence. And 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 I took early, and we're talking about people I'm friends with that we're talking about right here. Like, I'm like, why are these guys fucking busting my balls? Hit me up all the time. And I didn't realize in the world of music, it's constantly like, hey, checking back in on this. And I'm like, like, <laughs> Because in my head, I'm juggling a million things. So I'm like, why is this motherfucker checking back in? I already told him. <laughs> and it took me a while. And it's great that you said that because I remember early on, as these guys are, as I'm working with these guys, like, be like, man, they're sweating me all the time. But you're telling me that's part of the, the cadence of it. Um, and by the I, way, Joe, it is a very fine line that I can't even articulate from when it comes to like being good with follow up and follow through and being a pain in the ass. Right. Like, and I think like I sat razor's edge, (laughs) I sat right on that razor's edge. Uh, but you know, I, and I was probably a pain in the ass to some as well too, but I, to me, like accountability means so much to me. And if things aren't going to work out, I need to know that like, it's never because of lack of effort, right? Like when things end up going wrong in business or whatever it is you're doing, I don't want and want anyone to look at like me and be like, ah, oh, like, man, like he didn't really, he didn't give it his all there, right? So I, I always try and make sure that like, no matter what the effort's there and I gave it my best. Now, as, as we start talking about new agents coming into this, I feel again, like, and this is something that we talked about on a couple other podcast episodes before Good Fight. Yeah, it was kind of the wild west as far as like actual managers, booking agents would eventually start getting pulled into the agency group or like with Stormies. The agents always kind of, if you got good enough as a booking agent, some bigger agent, you became like their junior and you got into that organized world. But management for hardcore punk and metalcore that we're talking about was the Wild West. Everybody was kind of out for themselves. But Good Fight is the first time that I can recall an organized process where guys who are directly a part of the scene, like these guys we're talking about, Timmy Z grew up in Philadelphia hardcore. Biggie is Orange County hardcore. If from the end of the 90s through now, you know, like these guys are dyed in a paint with it. So they had this unique ability through Good Fight to start leveraging bands at an earlier stage in their career where some bands would have a hiccup or they hit that like um, plateau as a band first starts growing. And it needs to be said, if you guys didn't if go back to the same thing, if you guys didn't do the work a couple years before, the turnstiles, the co- you know, even bands who don't work with Good Fight, but just like you guys created a system in the mid 2000s 15 years later that's still now the way bands grow and i don't think you actually realize it because you went on to so many other things the platform for the ways bands can grow that are starting to take off and give them not only like the nurturing friendship and kind of like navigate the things that come up as a band grows but you gave them the ability to kind of like, as we were talking about with quicksand where that wasn't there in the nineties, that's the way bands grow now. And so many of them grow directly because of good fight. And that's all because of you. I, that, I mean, 
that's it's pretty mind blowing to hear you articulate it that way. And and look, I, I think um, you know, it's it's really because the people I surrounded myself with, right? Like, you know, Tim Bohr, like I man, the king. He was so crucial to my development, right? And like every, like when I got in in 2003, like he was already on his way with Lamb of God and Kill Switch Engage, right? And you know, and as we're like Vaughn and Kenny and the guys at the syndicate as well, too. And and Carl had, you know, everything on the record label dialed in. Um, so I, I think what I did really well back then was just forge amazing partnerships, right? With like the right people, right? And like, you know, look, and even, you know, on the metal, on the record label side, even like metal blade records and prosthetic records like D and trust kill they like they invested in sounds of the underground in the very beginning right like they knew that we were trying to create a platform that was going to be good for everybody right so like there there was a true camaraderie back then from as across the industry that I don't know if it exists in that capacity today or not, but I, I there's no doubt that it, is, it was that camaraderie that ended up um, being what catalyzed the growth of the scene. Like, I remember, too, there was a tour. God, it had them in 2005. And maybe it was, no, it was probably even earlier. And it was, it was every time I die, as I lay dying, Black Dahlia Murder and Scarlet, right? And none of these bands at that time were really cooking. And Ferret and Metal Blade worked so hard on collaborative marketing and not like it wasn't Ferret marketing Ferret artists or Metal Blade marketing Metal Blade artists. It was like everybody invested in making that tour as big as it could possibly be. And like the turnout was so much bigger than anyone ever expected. I remember there were like, there were shows where we had to like book an afternoon show and an evening show because the turnout was so huge. And it was really about collaboration, man. And we all, and you know, what's, what's interesting about it too, Joe, like you, know, you had you know, look, Lamb of God, Unearth, Shadows Fall, Kill Switch Engage, Eat. Like all these bands were more or less competing for space to a certain extent. Most of those bands would put ego aside or like or the desire for having like growth on their own. Like they put all that aside in order to help develop the overarching scene. And like that, and, you know, maybe that sounds a little bit hokey to say, but like as we're sitting here talking about it, when you talk about like the process that was created, I mean, just at the root of it all, it's just collaboration, man. And when I when I think of all them bands, you know, um, there was a kill switch kill switch every time I die show in the early two thousands at the kill time. Yeah. And it's summertime and somebody ran in and stole all the door money. <laughs> why I say this is like to think about telling somebody like, yeah, you know, uh, 
clearly one of the biggest bands in American metal. At one point, they're playing a show that barely had 150 people, and it's a hot summer Philly night in West Philly, and someone runs in and steals the door money. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, that's their beginnings. Yeah. That's yeah. their beginnings. All these guys came from legitimate DIY roots, and I think that that's important because whereas the time I hair back and just want to be a rock star metal stuff kind of died away. You need and Lamb of God with Burn the Priest who played down the street yeah. at Stalag when they had, you know, like I think that as you guys were all growing, you kind of linked up with these bands that had that grit, that tenacity that already went through it with their first band for most part. And we're kind of like, all right, we learned what the underground did with our first bands. Here's our newer things going on. Yes. And, and, and I think that, it wouldn't have worked out as well for any of the bands if any of these bands were their very first bands, because I think you need to have them sleeping on the floor that grind, like we're either going to make it or we're going to give up. And these guys, all these bands we're talking about are still active. They never gave up. Yeah. And I think that you guys all kind of had to have that same founding point where it's like, this is where we came from. This is where we're at. And this is where we want to go. Absolutely. And, you know, I'll, I'll say that, um, what was really important as a manager um, with those kind of bands was to like really listen and represent them, you know, wa walking into Epic records, right? Like managing lamb of God heading into the release of ashes of the wake. They wanted to do things a certain way, right? Like, and you know, Epic lamb of God wanted to do right. Like why, you know, they didn't want to spend their entire recording fund on making a record. Why they wanted to like put a lot of that money aside and work with a producer that was kind of, that Epic didn't really know, right? And like on, you know, cool opportunities to create. But when it comes to like the foundational development of an artist from one record to the next or one tour to the next, really hearing them and defending their point of view was super important. Like I remember like Lamb of God wanted to release a low budget DVD a year before. It was there. They actually released one even before that though. Oh, they, okay. Yeah. They released one that like Spangenberg put together. that was like, you know, a collage of like Hellfest footage and uh, metal fest footage. And it was like a nine dot nine ninety nine dollar DVD. And like, Epic couldn't understand it. And Epic was like fighting and Lamb of God was just bullish on, we've got to do this. We want to do this for our fans. And it was a huge success. It was not a huge commercial success, but it was just something that their fan base was super excited about. Like I had nothing to do with that idea. It was like Lamb of God's idea. I just made sure I stayed committed to seeing it happen, right? And there were just things like that over and over and over. Like I learned so much from the bands I worked with. I mean, you know, Lamb of God and, and Every Time I Die and Unearth, like, man, their their vision um and how they develop talking to Biggie about every time I die, like where they are today, so many years later, and like how crazy and cult-like their following is and the quality of their music, it just blows my mind that they continue to, I would even say, grow in relevance over time. And 
I think I was a good manager. Biggie's a great manager. But man, like so much credit goes to the artists. I love that this is now the second time where you've been. First time you said, well, I kind of sucked at being an A&R. And now you're <laughs> like, I was good at being a manager, but this guy's better. It's a thing knowing the accomplishments that you have under your belt and seeing the drive and the way that you can find synergy in these different relationships and still give yourself hard criticism instead of standing back and tapping yourself on the shoulder and be like, look at everything I did. And I think that's probably why you constantly are on to different projects because you're never sitting back and admiring the view. Would you say that's kind of the truth? Yeah. And it's, um, it's the blessing and the curse of me, man. I'm really hard on myself. Right. Like I, and I, I think, um, I'm, I'm too hard on myself. I've been told by therapists I'm too hard on myself. So like that certainly brings out, um, it, it, it is, it fuels my drive, but what I've had to learn over the last decade of my life is not to be that hard on myself because it, it does create anxiety and it can create, um, it can create some mental challenges and emotional challenges for myself. But now that I know how to manage it all, uh, I kind of use it as fuel for growth. And, you know, look, Joe, I, the interesting thing about me and my career like when I decided to leave music and move across the country and launch a company that, you know, repped pro skateboarders and worked in MMA, when my gut starts going in a certain direction, I'll make sure I'm being thoughtful and I, I try to not um, jump the gun on things to where like I'm putting my family or myself at risk. But I've just, I get strong gut feelings at certain moments in my career. And when those gut feelings happen, I've got to like, I've got to chase them down. And no matter how aggressive of a pivot that ends up creating in my career, whether it's like industries or geographically moving from one place to the other. Um, yeah, it's, uh, it's deep within me for sure. And I, I think that like, developing businesses, developing culturally driven businesses is like my art, man. I'm so deeply passionate about it. I mean, look, I, you know, I've been working with Haley from Paramore on building a, um, a, a hair brand named Good Die Young. Like her and I have worked together for nearly seven years now and I've never done anything in hair care, but like there is a cultural position and purpose with that brand that was really inspiring for me to build and support Haley in building. Right. So yeah, I, I, you know, I'm not, I'm not as married to a specific industry as much as I am to the building process. As long as that building process lives inside of a culture, I can appreciate. I'm so glad that you talked about the jump. And, it, and I think talking about Epic Records kind of to see someone like you who has a big vision and you kind of see the wider ability of everyone to work together. And then you're sitting across the desk or in an email with somebody who has a very short mind. And I have to believe that that had to play a decent part in why you shifted from music to sports 
And I remember writing you an email and you're like, hey, just so you know, good fight still going on. But I'm over here managing Rampage Jackson. I'm working with uh, Deirdrick and I've got the skateboarding league now. And I realize what it is, or maybe maybe correct me if I'm wrong. But for you, you just saw this wider pasture where you could play more within ideas and developing. And also because you had now at this stage, you know, well, well over a decade of building relationships with brands and sponsors and, and try things within different cultures where the same thing happens. You take a band, you get them on the best tour you can. The band wants a record. Okay. You got to talk to the label about it. It makes perfect sense now that you said what you alliterated with the epic thing where it's like, all right, I can give this to somebody else. I need to go over here and try to build new shit. Yeah. I, um, I need growth. Right. I just I need personal growth in my life. And, you know, my business and my career is a huge part of my life. And to your point, you know, I I randomly met Chris Cole, who at the time was the top pro skateboarder in the world, uh, Philly guy as well, too. I met him backstage at a concert in a Children of Bodom concert. And him and I just struck up this friendship. Right. And. I was out to dinner, sure. like so. Like there was this weird cultural overlap with Chris and his wife and myself and music and like I knew some of the skateboarding companies he was working with and like his wife said to me, like you would be so great working in skateboarding. Like the industry is so raw and there's so much value you could bring to it. You should consider it. And it was literally that conversation I had with the two of them at dinner that set me on this path. And what happened is I looked like at opportunities in skateboarding and like there were no ceilings there. It was wide open terrain. Now I could have had enormous failure inside of that wide open terrain, but all I could see was opportunity. Right. And so when I saw this uncapped opportunity, I'm good fight was cooking with Biggie and Tim and Chuck. Now, those guys were killing it. And like I developed, I had helped them develop to the place where they were great on their own. All this opportunity, like let me dive in and see what I've got. And like as part of that journey, I stayed connected. And any opportunity I could do anything in music along the way, I would do that and I would help out my friends in music and grow into different industries over time because of those relationships. Like there was just always opportunities for collaboration. Like, you know, a funny, a funny thing that I'm working on now, which is again, just you build a good relationship with somebody and you treat them right. And there's always opportunities to be had in the future. Like I'm working on something with Mike Bisping now, the former UFC championship that we're going to announce in the next couple of weeks for the fall. That's going to be massive. And it was, I had an idea guy I trained jujitsu with was the guy that actually introduced me to Mike 10 years ago. I said to Brian, like, Hey man, can you put me and Mike back together? I have an idea we should talk about. And because I left things in a great place with Mike, we got back together and now we're looking to do something awesome again. And it's, and like I said at the beginning of this podcast, working on something with Vaughn and Kenny and Armando, 
Now, don't get me wrong, Joe. There's a lot of people in my life that have fallen by the wayside over the last decade. And I can't control that, right? But I more focus on the people that are with me and like, and the appreciation of the relationship I have with them and opportunities to like build new things with them. But I think back to, and I went off on a little bit of a tangent there, but back to your point about like my switch into skateboarding, it was my desire for personal growth coupled with looking at a culturally driven industry where I saw a ton of untapped opportunity. Which is really interesting because culturally skateboarding really had a higher level of popular growth in the eighties and the nineties than like hardcore punk and certain other industries, but it was still the wild west because there wasn't this formula. And I think again, this is like that weird access point where you're coming in with all this experience, having dealt with metal, having all this stuff. And you see this world and you're like, wait, who's even doing anything over here <laughs> now? You did Crush, you had Rampage, and then you started working with Deirdrick. What what came in order, and then how did the Skateboard League really start taking up? Did you need the brands and the people that you were linking up with previously to kind of help launch that? Like, how did you how did you start making your first couple moves into sports skateboarding and uh, the MMA stuff? Sure. So when I launched Crush, initially it was going to be like representing skateboarding and BMX clients, right? So I had Chris Cole, Jamie Thomas, Tom Asta, who was another kid. I mean, he's not a kid now, but he grew up in Langhorn as well too. And um, I started consulting for Rob Deerdick, who at the time had shows on MTV. He had an idea for a skateboarding league that was going to launch. And so as I started focusing on sports, Biggie loves skateboarding. And Biggie said to me like, hey, my friend Brian Talbert is, uh, he trains a couple of MMA fighters. Like he works with this camp, Wolf's Lair, that have Rampage Jackson and Mike Bisping. And Brian's very close with Rampage and Bisping. Like we should meet and talk about whether you can bring brand deals to MMA fighters. This is 2010, right? So Brian and Biggie and I had a meal, loved Brian. Uh, he, by the way, is the guy that got me into jujitsu many years later. And Brian introduced me to Rampage. And I had a great meeting with, had guys that were like their fight managers, right? But they needed me to help them find business and brand deals, which is what I started doing for those guys. Uh, Rampage and Bisping were both awesome and so I'm building Crush Sports. And by the way, beyond even representing athletes, I ended up consulting for a startup idea for a craft beer brand named St. Archer that was co-founded by a couple of pro skateboarders. And I, I helped them build their original business plan and raise capital, raise investment money for that business, which ultimately launched, exploded, and got acquired by Miller Coors a few years later. Damn. So I'm doing all this inside of Crush, but then I start to get really into what Rob is doing with his company, Sporting League, that was in its first year, I thought was a brilliant idea. Like he basically 
you know, wanted to create the UFC more or less for skateboarding and really put pro skateboarding on a premium competitive platform like it had never done before. So I really started to invest a lot of time in helping create opportunities for the skateboarding league. And a year and a half in to crush, Rob approached me and he's like, look, I don't need um, a consultant at this point. Like I need a CEO to work with me on everything I'm doing, right? From my skateboarding league to my show productions to brand deals. And again, his platform created such an opportunity for personal growth for me that I needed to give it. And what was challenging about that, Joe, um, I had partners, I, they were, you know, Crush Management, the music company, they gave me a little bit of money. I mean, not a little bit, a good amount of money to move to California to launch Crush Sports. And here I am a year and a half into it. And like, I want to go become CEO of Deertic Enterprises, right? So I, a guy named Keith Isola, who oddly enough, I met because he was a TM of Madball many years ago. <laughs> Keith was working with me inside of Crush. And what we had ultimately worked out was that Keith would take over Crush Sports. All of the deals that I did inside of Crush would stay inside of Crush and it would be like a clean slate break. And I would go become CEO of Deerdick Enterprises. I, and I felt like I tried to, but the good news is when that beer company got acquired by Miller Coors, those guys made a shit ton of money. And then they were happy. <laughs> yeah. So I, I hope they're happy. Like I'm not in touch with those guys anymore, but I would hope they'd be happy, but it was awesome because Keith, who is like a brother to me to this day, he ended up like managing Cole and the skateboarders and carrying crush forward. And again, like a guy I met through hardcore. Right. Um, so I then went into Deerdick and then ultimately, you know, inside of Deerdick, I raised investment capital for the skateboarding league. The skateboarding league really started to come up big brand sponsors. Nike was a co-presenting sponsor with Monster Energy, GoPro was a sponsor, PacSun, Corporate America inside of that process. So after doing that for a couple of years, um, I had a conversation with Bohr on a Sunday afternoon, and we started talking about the agency group. And uh, he was telling me about the ambitious growth plans for the agency group. And a woman, Natalia Nastaskin, who was the attorney, she was general counsel at the agency group for years, who I held in the highest regard, she'd become CEO. And Tim's like, you should talk to Natalia. Maybe there's an opportunity where like, you can come work with us here. So that led to me getting a senior executive position at the agency group, pulling me back into the music industry in a different capacity where like my title was chief strategy and revenue officer. And ultimately my goal was to help the larger agency group clients build like business and brand platforms, very similar to like what I was doing with Rob. Interestingly though, that role. So like, I love the building process, right? I love complicated business opportunities 
in that role, there was an energy that was more about making clients happy and getting deals done. And I was more excited about building. So as an example, inside of the agency group is where I met Haley from Paramore. And that was where her and I started cooking up because the agency group represented Paramore. That's where we started cooking up her idea to build Good Die Young. And I loved doing things like that. There were a lot of things inside of the agency group, even though my best friends worked there, just wasn't the right place for me. And I had realized at that point, I had to get back to my entrepreneurial roots, which is what I had launched this company that ultimately began Impact Real Life, which is what I've been doing for basically the last five and a half years. I'll pause here because I just gave you and your listeners a ton of information. No, in fact, so it, this always goes back to why I start at the fucking very beginning of someone's story. <laughs> so you have a father who's had his hands dirty his whole life. Yeah. At one point, he's like, I, I don't know what to fucking do with you. Yeah. Here's five G's. You got to make something happen. Yeah. And here you are, damn near 20 years later, you've gone from sleeping on a couch at Kid Rock's managers. <laughs> <laughs> you, you created the, the most independent metal festival that toured the country. You laid the groundwork so bands could have a fair shake and growth to be more commercially successful than ever possible in the 1990s. You create so many opportunities for different bands that you see that bands and music is constrictive. So you go in over into sports in sports. You create this uh, synergistic relationship between riders, skaters, you build a league, you get your first CEO opportunity over Rob Deirdrick at a time when fantasy factory, Robin big, you know, I had this joke. My dog's favorite show is ridiculousness because when we leave the house, I put ridiculousness on. <laughs> and I'm not unsure that there's an entire MTV channel that doesn't play ridiculousness 24-7 because there's so many fucking episodes. Straight up. And then you pivot once again to create this financial role within the agency group. For those understanding this is the agency group is this omnibus representative company that is in music, it's an actor, it's an all the, it's really the agency group. It's like the catch-all giant corporation. And all this comes from building skills and sales, building relationships, learning the players and brands, and also learning how there's value and how to find the things that you're working on and express their value so people, because when you're talking about what you're working on and immediately it's got to be like the um like a tablet going over your head like where's the value who would find value in us where is the money and it's a fucking it's it's a gift it's a gift in you to find the money to create these things out of thin air and i don't think another person's capable because you have all these different prerequisite experiences and you have direct talent and skill and you have this like 
insane drive at any point so far in a story. I don't think you've shared just one hat for too long. And you're always working on one thing and seeing, well, over there, I can do this. Where does the burnout come? Where does the stress, where does that moment where, like you had said, and this is another important thing that you touch on if you like. Sure. As you shift at a crush, you actually did the right thing and let that company still make money off of work that you did. So that way the relationship stayed intact where I think other people may have said, well, no, this is my money. This is my deal. I'm going to take this with me. How do you manage the financial stuff in your head, the family, and then the aspirations for success without having crash and burn moments? Yeah, it's interesting. There's probably people that would look at me in retrospect and be like, man, that guy like, what a pain in the ass. He was like always like driving hard deals, et cetera, et cetera. And like, I, you know, there were times where I probably have pushed too hard on certain business situations and not handled it the right way. But overall, I really try to do the right thing by people when I can. And I think I've probably left a good bit of money on the table and being that way in the past, as it relates to burnout, um, I have to say like, the last 30 days, right? Like, right, it's, it's so funny that you're asking this question and we're having this conversation. I think, Joe, for most of my career, I've had this like natural ebb and flow of everything I've done where, again, I've put thought into it all and certain things have certainly been stressful along the way. Like moving across the country was super stressful you know, the challenges that we had with the Warner Music Group, super stressful. But I've always got through it with too much, without too much emotional hardship. Um, I think my emotional hardship over the last 10 years has been more things I've had to deal with personally with my family. But when it comes to like burnout related to my career, you know, this company that I've been doing for the last five and a half years, I was all in on it, right? Like I I left the agency group and I'm like, this is my bet. And I felt so deeply vested in building this company. And like with inside of this company, Joe, what, what I'd also been doing for five and a half years, I'd been helping Vans, the footwear, the skate footwear brand build another skateboarding league in park skateboarding and like our league influenced park skateboarding's participation in the Olympics. And so Vans is such an incredible brand to work with and it influenced, you know, music culture in such a major way and they're still doing it. So for the last five and a half years, I'd been building this company with amazing people with, you know, Haley from Paramore with Vans. And we evolved our company to being largely focused on developing event properties, right? And a year ago, like at the top of 2020, skateboarding was to be in the Olympics. And we were planning a four-day celebration of skate culture. City. We did a big deal with the state of Utah that was going to make a financial contribution to this festival. There was going to have 
music on a Thursday and then skateboarding on Friday and Saturday. And there was, it was going to be kind of like my crown jewel of my work. And then beyond my work with Vans, I'd taken on, our company had taken on this big project with Lionsgate Studios as well too. We're working on this project with Tony Hawk. So at the beginning of 2020, I was like, holy shit. Like, this is it, man. Like, my entire career building to this. And then, as we all know, the pandemic happened, right? And when the pandemic happened, I had, like, five major projects going. Three of them went away overnight, right? So that was a, a significant blow to my business. league Last year, but to Van's credit, God bless them. They still kept my company busy throughout 2020 with consulting work, which literally kept our doors open. And I had thought we were going to be able to bounce back this year with vaccines and like optimism on the horizon. And unfortunately, and so like struggling. So all through 2020, struggling brutally just to keep our company afloat. I had to lay off a couple of people, like restructuring, you know, the amount of money we were able to make. We all stopped taking money at the end of last year. It was really hard. Here's why I'll never complain. So many people that listen to this podcast that like depend on touring or with, which is why I can't, like I, I will never complain but unfortunately, like, whereas I thought we were going to build our way out of this this year, Vans made the decision uh, a few weeks ago that they weren't going to be able to carry the skateboarding season forward again this coming year. And with the skateboarding season being canceled a second year in a row, uh, it was the death blow for my company. So for all of the, it's just funny how things work out. For all of the pivoting and moves I'd made, I sunk my teeth into this business and I was all in. And then like a force far beyond my control just delivered a massive gut punch to us that I couldn't find my way out of. And um, I'd say that for about a month, I had been dealing with, um, you know, I think what was pretty close to burnout, if not burnout. Like we had a board meeting two weeks ago where we made the official determination to kind of wind down my company, Impact Real Life. And I had been preparing for the moment and I knew it was going to happen. And like, I had like an emotional breakdown in the board meeting where it's like me and like two other board members. And like, I'm like crying in front of them as a 51 year old man, right? Which was just so you want to talk about like sitting in discomfort. I'm like, just, I'm getting emotional because I knew it was the end, right? And this was the first time, Joe, in 30 years in business, I was seeing something to the end without knowing what was next, right? And that was a really uncomfortable place to be. It's funny how things work out though, like in telling everybody about what I was going through and I made like a post on LinkedIn about our company shutting down. 
So many people have reached out to me now wanting to explore opportunities that um, as hard as that board meeting and all the hard conversations with team and investors were leading into that board meeting where I had that breakdown, every day since I've felt more and more optimistic, man. And like, and I have to say, um, as hard as it was to ride my company straight in to the fucking ground, I'm glad I did it. I needed to ride it all the way down. Sure, there wasn't a way to dig out of it. So, um, so yeah, when it comes to burnout, man, I'm just getting myself on the other side of it, truthfully. I think more so there's a balancing point where there's drive, there's aspirations, there's that thrill of victory, the agony of defeat. And I think anytime we suffer losses or with setbacks, it's how you can handle it and how you can find the sunlight through the fog that's going to keep the tracks clean and you moving forward. And um, there, there's nothing else to be said about it besides that any kind of person who works in these kind of things where music or just in all the businesses that you're doing, there's got to be moments where you're riding high on insane amounts of music world. Yeah. There's so much social drinking. There's so much pressure to kind of like let off steam. And obviously you mentioned a couple of times. Now you found jujitsu and uh, you found sobriety, which is a fucking absolutely amazing. Thank you. But there has to be moments at your highest successes where you were on this razor where it could have went the other way if the stress was too much. And the balancing point, it had to be just seeing the project through. Because I know for me, I'm, so many times I'm not worried about me. I'm worried about how do we get this done? How does this work no matter what? And I have to imagine for all the hats you've worn and jobs you've done, you've had to instill the project and completion as the priority over your own mental health, correct? Without a doubt. Like always, um, it's always been gone far out of my way to like help people, you know, through my transition as well. And even like with, you know, my company now, I'm still talking to, you know, the, the four people that were on my team at the end a couple times a week, seeing if there's ways I can help them or things we can do together. Like, you know, when I invest myself in something, I invest myself in all of it, in all of the people. And as long as those people treat me the right way as a human, then I, I'll, I want to reciprocate and even overextend myself to be helpful in return. And, you know, Joe, one thing um, that you brought up about, you know, sobriety that, and I wouldn't correlate it to burnout, the career burnout, but what I would correlate it to is lifestyle burnout. My lifestyle wasn't right back then. I was drinking way too much. I wasn't sleeping. Uh, I had a, an unhealthy chip on my shoulder and I developed panic attacks back then. I'll never forget flying home from Miami. There was a, uh, a gathering of all of us in like the music community down there. And I'd been out all night drinking 
and I'm fly. I'm on a plane, and I had a panic attack on a plane. And there is, it's like such a horrible feeling to be on a plane having a panic attack, right? Um, and it was shortly after that that I got myself into therapy and realized, like, look, I like I can't manage myself on my own. I need help. And that was about ten years ago, decade. Whether it's therapy, sobriety, meditation, I think the ultimate stress management tool has been jujitsu for me as well, too. I've just been on this path to ensure that no matter how intense things get with business, I'm living a lifestyle that can kind of support me through whatever challenges business may present to me. Because the truth is, I love the challenges of business. I love rising out of the challenges in business. I just need to make sure that A, I don't put my family at risk and B, I don't put myself at risk because of that intensity. And with the lifestyle I'm leading now, I'm way better equipped to kind of deal with what I've been dealing with over the last couple months and rise through it. No, that's, I appreciate you uh, putting that out there. I feel that at times, there is that riding high and, you know, there's almost like the, the, the abuse mentally. You don't see the, the self abuse that comes from the failures or the stress of getting shit done. And, and some of this ways just in like wanting to complete a task because you have a relationship and you don't want to let the other side down. Yes. And, and, and it weighs so much fucking heavier. Like I tell people, there's times I'd rather just get beat the fuck up. <laughs> Give me a black eye. It's easier. I can go to sleep with a black eye, <laughs> you know, and yeah. you have the way. And for me, um, jujitsu was an amazing help. Um, I, I now can't sleep. I, I mean, I don't think I ever really could sleep, but I take CBD gummy is the only way my brain shuts down because otherwise I'll think of something that was in my head further down deep. And it's the only way that shuts that part off constantly your Rolodex is growing every fucking year. I mean, at one point you're working with um, Gamora, like from fucking uh, Galaxy. Oh, what's it? Yeah, you're working with her. Yes. You're working with Haley, but you're still hanging out with Tim Moore. It's you have so many feet and, uh, you know, so many feet in so many different places and you're trying to build and it's all comes from culture. And that's a that's a thing I really want to focus on yeah. is the fact that I think you unlocked it. I think you unlocked it, be it whether it's MMA culture and trying to find the best brand deals to help these fighters continue. I don't think that there's, I think there's more similarities and common denominators in the way that you manage a band in a way that I think is part of why now we're going to see, start seeing skateboard in the Olympics. And I remember me and Matt, you brought up Matt before. Yeah. I remember at the end of the nineties, he and I were actually might've been early, like I think maybe 2000 and it might've been 2001, the latest we were sitting in Maniunk watching like the X games. Yeah. And being like, this dude's going to sit on this fucking skateboard and go down this hill. This is crazy. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And, and now to think about, I mean, you, another thing to think about, which is kind of cool. I don't know if you've seen this, but in hardcore at least, and in my internet universe, I think every every third person in hardcore through the COVID picked up a skateboard. 
And it, it, it reminds me of being a kid. Yeah. It reminds me of being a kid and all of us being headbangers with skateboards. Only it's these younger kids like, oh, I'm finally going to rollerblade. I'm finally going to learn to skateboard. And I think that the pivot towards these uh, pursuits are just part of the whole culture, whether it's music. And it, it's awesome to see that you've always managed to find a place where you can contribute, develop, and bring these. And, and, and a huge part of it is you're bringing large commercially successful products in the sense of, Hey, these guys got the money, but they need, they want to keep having their shit grow. You bring it into this culture and there is a benefit, a benefit to it. Whereas I think the eighties would say a lot about selling out where you're like, and it's like that joke about buying in instead of buying in, you're saying, Hey, you guys got this money, put, Put your ass behind this culture, build and grow. So I kind of want you to talk about where it's not selling out. It, it's finding assets and, and, and growing culture. Yeah. I, I think it's um, it really is all about like the value of the partnership, right. And what that partnership can, can bring to a culture. Um, you know, I, I mentioned like the hot topic, uh, partnership back in 2005 and again like you know we didn't have great catering budgets on sounds of the underground as a startup tour but when hot topic wanted to figure out how to create a unique experience for like a handful of contest winners it's like okay well how can that bring value to the artists on our tour right and when you like when you have a significant budget and you're in like, you know, Austin, Texas. No, it wasn't in Corpus Christi, Texas. And you can bring in like some amazing barbecue, local barbecue, courtesy of Hot Topic and all these art deal that you did. Um, that feels right to me, right? Or even like, you know, Jägermeister, beyond the money that they gave us for the tour, they made this amazing air-conditioned, artist lounge right that we had backstage at sounds of the underground and it was real hot backstage and like whether artists drank or not they're always welcome to be in the artist lounge right and that was that was something that created a better experience for artists backstage and i think as long as like you think about it through that lens right like how is this bringing value to the culture is it you know, is it bringing value from an experience standpoint, whether it's catering or an artist lounge, or is it like amplifying artists? Are you putting artists on a bigger platform? Are you putting skateboarders on a bigger platform because of the partners that you're bringing to the league? And, you know, it's not, um, it's not an exact science and I'm sure there are things that, um, We've done wrong. I've done wrong along the way as well, too. But in my mind, um, as long as the cultural presentation of whatever it is, whether it be music, whether it be skateboarding, if the cultural presentation is not affected and you can figure out a way to have a partner bring value to a culture then that's what you do, right? Like that, that, that's my opinion anyway. And I do think it served us well. You know, I remember like back in 2010, 
uh, I had Madball. Madball, and now they ended up building a separate relationship with Monster, independent of like them playing this Monster post party. But like to this day, like Monster still supports Madball, right? And like, yeah, I know from my conversations with Freddie, like that support is really important. And those, and because it's done the right way, they're psyched about it, right? And I, so I just, I think Vans, right? Like, you look at everything that Vans has done for music culture and the investments they've made or skateboarding culture because they come at it with a respect for the culture first and foremost, and they never let anything they do take away from the development of that culture all day long, right? Like who doesn't want to be aligned with Vans? Um, so I think there's right ways to go about it. And, you know, I, I think for the right opportunities, um, it can be a really helpful catalyst to like helping an artist develop or again, helping a skateboarder develop for that matter. Well, I, I think another thing, and I, it was great that you alliterated with Manball is early in your career, you were managing bands and it's hard bands. You know, they got to put gas in the tank. They got to keep things going. And I feel like only now are seeing, we see a, some kind of like re, re, reciprocity regarding like, hey, look, our fucking fans are buying your product. Put it back into our put it back into our world so we can all grow. And I think rightly so um, vans through Warp Tour and then through their own channels. I mean, with. They have a thing with Walter now with their Vans channel with the New Direction show. These brands are now seeing instead of trying to poach and look for their own consumers, they're seeing the relationship of if we value these customers, we're going to grow generationally with them. And I think that that's a, I think that Vans is a great example of that. And I think that what you did with music also helps in that because the only way that, I mean, Bands are not going to live off T-shirt sales and record sales and all these different things alone. They need the extra capital like a small business just to keep the doors open. Absolutely. And because bands can influence, right, like the selling of product, they just can. That's reality. To your point, it makes sense that brands invest in those artists. And I, I will say that like with, you know, hardcore opportunity for the right brands, like I'm psyched to see liquid death supporting Toby now. And Toby's, you know, sending liquid death out to all of like, you know, the bands that he's cool with, like, and, and, you know, my understanding is like the founder of liquid death is like a guy who like grew up in the Philly hardcore scene who I don't know actually, but I will meet someday. Like I, Stan Socks is another brand that has done like cool collabs in this world. Like it, there just needs to be so much more of it, man. It really does. It can be done the right way. I think for the culture and for whatever brands that want to invest in it the right way, but there's just not from my vantage point, there's not enough of it happening right now. People who have this extra capital in their businesses with all the big profits and, you know, the strength of their brand, what they're willing to invest in. And I think it's going to be people like you that unlock the code and find more people that have 
the thought. Um, again, going back to Ernie Talbert, Ernie Talbert started at uh, Champion, brought the brand into where it's back to now, ended up at er- Under Armour, and is even further in another company now. And as he was saying, it's like you find these you find these relationships and where you can help them grow. And now we're seeing it in the reverse where these brands are seeing like, yeah, you know what? It's worth investing in skateboarding. Oh, wait, it's worth investing in this punk hardcore community. You know, I feel like there was a moment where Doc Martin locally here, we had them like bands because the door is only going to bring so much into the bands, the T-shirts, the record sales are going to bring so much of bands, but it's going to be people like you that can found these relationships to keep this whole thing going. Absolutely. And look, there, there are people that, you know, that come up in hardcore that end up to so the head of global marketing, right? For Vance is a $5 billion company. The guy that runs all of their marketing was a guy that has done like MAD tours in like, like he's been on tour with Madball in Europe, right? Like he did the persistence tour, like this, like, so there are people that like will end up in these pockets of being able to influence opportunities for brands. Now, look, this guy that runs marketing for Vans, Vans is always going to be in this space, but it's just the the point is like, he's a senior executive for a multi-billion dollar company that came up being on tours in Europe in like the late nineties. Right. And it's just, there's people that are out there. The woman that runs clubs and theaters for Live Nation, like she came up in the Florida hardcore scene, right? It's, you know, the, the Madball record infiltrating the system. Freddie and I all talk about like, you know, there are people that will come up in hardcore, but then will end up in very different places, but then also be in places where they can influence creating opportunities for the culture that was so important to them, right? And like, that's, you know, I think for me, Joe, and this is going to be a bit of a tangent, but when I think about like hardcore and like what it means to me, like there was something about me going to the shows in in the 90s and like me hating my job. There was just something about that moment in time and the influence of music on me that put me in a place to feel like it was safe to take risks, right? And like I, the people that I've, developed relationships with along the way they're so the people are more important as important now they're more important to me than the music because of like what they stand for and who they are and it's why i'm still friends with tim Bohr. it's why you know biggie and i have the relationship we have it's why i go see madball every time they come through southern california because we all can be in different places now but our mentality and our drive can create interesting opportunities from different places as well too, which is why I keep looking for opportunities to bring value to music where I can, because I think there are still untapped opportunities to be had for music. I mean, every person who has been graced with understanding hardcore culture at a fundamental level, we're just taught basic tenets. And I and and things resonate, and I think it's like something that you've seen, and I know I've seen. I've been in a, I've been in Europe by myself after playing a festival, and just want to go see my friends in England. 
and ended up hanging out on a plane with a bunch of kids who I who were at the fest. And then we brought their band over there. Like, hey, we're in a band from Nottingham. I'm like, you're playing the fest. We're bringing like, <laughs> there's this, there is still such a small grassroots, like kind of like immediate acceptance. Like, oh, you're from hardcore scene. Okay, we have something in common, and we have these bonds, and we have these minimal. I would say like acceptance of like, okay, I know where you're going to come from because you came from hardcore and you get where I came from. So we already have a starting point. Many of our guests, Jamie Biss, who's a very well-known restauranteur, like there's all these different people that start in hardcore and they go other places. And so exactly what you're saying is, is like, you need to have that kind of like, you know, be it the guy from Vans or like you said, the girl from, you know, Florida, who's now involved in these uh, concert halls. This is a this is a basic kind of like open Freemasonry. Like, oh, you're from the hardcore shows. Okay, then you get where I'm coming from. Now, can we do some work together? You know, how can we work off each other? And I don't know if we've ever really expressed that on the show. So I love hearing it from your giant level, just the different ways that these these connections still exist. Um, Joe, so thank you for pointing that out, man. Well, and and I pointed out only to make. I think what is even like a more important point, like it's the beauty of your podcast in the podcast format. Is it like now enables you to be in a place where you can bring in guests that have, you know, that are rooted in hardcore culture, but doing different things. And like, I think that there are, you know, having people talk about adjacent cultures and, and how you can bring different like industries together and brand partnerships. I just think that your podcast is now creating a format for a more dynamic dialogue that is still super rooted in hardcore culture that has never existed before, which is why I'm so fascinated in what you're doing as well, too. I, I have a, hey, thank you so much. And it kind of, it throws me off sometimes because this thing started with wanting to do something in the space of podcasts where we weren't a nineties hardcore scene. And then as we had conversations at first, get some people that are interesting or they do things or they've impacted the culture. And then I realized it's not just the guys with the record labels or the famous world famous chefs who've won chop twice, but it's the Walter Schreffels and the Richie Birkenheads. And then I realized as I'm having a conversation with Richie and we're talking about commercial success versus the cultural value, I'm like, fuck, people listening may not really get the may not really get where I'm coming from. So I had to get to a bunch of guests just so people can understand, like, okay, this is why Joe's come with this and why you're on this show is because we've talked so many goddamn times about all these things, how bands may have floundered. And it's not because the band, it's like the band's job is to get on stage and fucking play, but you created the framework. So this band could just show up, play and someone was minding the business and helping them get to the next stage. And the things that you did with good fight, the things that you did just in keeping these relationships going, they're going to continue to build up the next stage of what hardcore is going to become. And I, and I used to think that there was walls. I used to think, Oh, well that's over here in metal, but you talk to Brian Fair. You talk to anybody from Kill Switch. You talk to anybody from Unearth. You talk to anybody from Every Time I Die. They're still hardcore kids. They just happen to take their art and their music to a place beyond these shows. 
Yeah. And even Madball, I mean, the you know, like, I mean, Freddie Madball was raised by the the genesis of New York hardcore, Roger Moret. Yes. You know, like literally, there's he has pictures of him on the shoulders of rabies. Yeah. And yet he manages to play a game where Madball is intrinsically culturally super important to hardcore, but he sees value in Madball being worldwide. Uh, Cypress Hill, yeah. like in October before we had COVID, and I'm like, only Madball would rip and win over a Cypress Hill crowd because that's the power of hardcore and that's the power of Freddie Madball. And so it comes full circle where, like, when I do this podcast, I want people to understand people like you because you have come into my life and you have exposed and, and, and shown me things and taught me things, and like, um. I think it's super funny when me, you and Tim sat down to talk about 10 for 10 was probably the first time someone ever took me out to eat as part of like a business dinner. And I was like, I don't even know what to do. I didn't even know what to do. Cause I'm like, I'm a fucking goon. And you're like, Tim's like, Oh, let's go out to have a dinner and we'll eat. And that was to me, like, is it hangs? Is it business? And I didn't know what to do. And you guys kind of popped my cherry with that. It's super funny. And I like to see the facets, whether we're talking about, impactful 1980s hardcore records or we're talking to people who had a major impact on the shift in how hardcore business is done because without business and without good business hardcore we've seen in the 80s i mean we've seen the 80s be proliferated by people who come in with bad deals and kill some of the founding bands and leave founding members of hardcore penniless we're having to work real jobs and I'm glad that there's a good fight. I'm glad that there's people now being like, no, we're going to be the bastion to protect the band. And you and Tim board did that. And so it's important for me with this podcast to make sure people understand, like there's good business in hardcore. And that doesn't mean everyone's out there getting rich, but a band having money coming through means the culture continues. And, and the first 10 years, there's so many bands that didn't have the stewardship of people like you to keep them rolling. And I, and Joe, I think that the impact of hardcore culture is so powerful that it deserves good business, right? Like what these artists do is so important and it just has such influence on people that are fans that they deserve to make good livings from it and then some and like that's why i was always so passionate as a manager and tried to fight so hard on my artists because as a fan going to hardcore shows in the 90s like i know how important it was to me and i can never i can never just wrap my head around like why some of my favorite bands from the 90s weren't so much bigger it never made sense to me so when I finally kind of connected my business experience with a culture of music that I love so much, I wanted to see it grow to the best of my ability. I, I have to wonder, as we talk about your best of your ability, if you're sitting here with all the successes saying, if I had one shot to go back and do something different, is there something that you think about or do you let when things don't come through, do you let them go away? Is there something that you were like, 
if I had a different fucking, if I could do it again, not a, not a redo, but like if you different shot at it, is there something that you think about when you think of like stuff that you've done that you wish you could have either accomplished that didn't come through? Is there something that like eats at you or not really? You know, I, um, <laughs> it's a great, I, I'm going to get so nitty gritty with you right now. And I think you'll appreciate it. Um, there was the best manager with Unearthed at times. I think like in retrospect, I think I could have supported them a bit better. And there was one tour in particular that it was coming off of the release of their follow-up record on Metal Blade. They just come off Ozfest. And I think I got too wrapped up in the momentum and the potential for what they could grow into. And we did a tour with Unearth and Bleeding Through and Terror and Through the Eyes of the Dead. And holy shit, there was one other band. It was an incredible package. And we pushed on venues that were too big and ticket prices that were too high. And I certainly, um, that was a moment where I probably had more influence than I should have um, on the business decisions that were being made. And it, it's really, it's interesting, like how something, because I'm so hard on myself, literally 15 years later, you ask that question and I go right to that moment because it was like, holy shit. If I had to redo smaller venues, cheaper ticket prices, like should have played it a bit more safe. So, I mean, I think from a nitty gritty standpoint, that, that moment was such a powerful learning for me to like not get overexcited in potential and make sure that you're making decisions on behalf of artists that are like rooted in like their longevity. Uh, so I think that was like a, a that's a nitty gritty example. Um, I think beyond that, and even like with that example, Joe, like it, it was an I lived that not succeeding, absorbed all of that pain. That it was a really good learning experience for me. Um, I think beyond that, man, you know, I, yeah. Look, I would also say too, um, I when I was younger. I wish I wasn't as aggressive as I was. I would not handle relationships as perhaps as, as good as I, I wouldn't handle them the way I would now because I, at times, like you talked earlier about focusing on getting certain things done. There were times where I got so laser focused on making a influencing a certain outcome happening that I wouldn't put the care into how I would treat people during that process. And that was an aspect of me, I would say 10, 12, 13 years ago, that in retrospect, I wish I wasn't that way. But all of these things, all of the ways I've mishandled things in the past and my being so hard on myself also influenced all of the self-work I've done over time to make me who I am now. And I feel really fucking good about who I am now, which is why I can't regret anything. I feel like I had a very similar arc in that there was probably why I'll always be just a concrete worker and do hardcore out of love because I had a very important 
this needs to stay aesthetically this way. And I didn't have the give. I didn't have the ability to work with people from the industry world where they would say, Hey, we want to do stuff with you, but this, and I'd be like, no, it's my way or highway hardcore or not. Fuck you. And I still have problems in my own dealing with shows where I've always worse where every fucking decision is micromanaged via email with no consideration that at a local level, a promoter, especially a promoter like myself with a lot of tenure and knowing our market and knowing what's going to happen. There's so few people in the management agent, even in the fucking band that has so much say in something where like we locally know what to work. Yeah. And, and, and I, and there has been times where I'm like, you know, I don't even want to do it. Go to the next guy. Like, the, and, and I've learned that building history and having relationships helps everybody. Yes. If Philly hardcore shows does the show, maybe next time we get the shot. Yeah. And I feel the same thing, what you said about not having overplays, but sometimes keeping it within the scene. So many bands and agents and managers fail like the small room energy. It's almost kind of like give a band lights blood. And I've seen bands show up and, and because I'm the guy who's usually there before the show and I'm definitely there the guy after the show talking to the bands, the agent and the manager want the most, the max gross, the big ticket sale. So they can go and say, look how many sales we had last time. And I'm telling you the band, they want to kill. Yep. And they want to feel like they killed. And sometimes on paper and in digital and in email, it's, well, we're trying to hit this certain mark. And I, and I, I if, if the biggest frustration, I guess I'm saying is, is trying to consult and say, I know what you're trying to do, yep. but I know where your band's going to work. And it just kills me when I get told like, we know what's best and it fails. I don't care when I'm wrong. Yep. And I love being wrong. Here's what I wanted to do. Here's what your fucking people do. Go back to your fucking people and tell them, let Joe do what he wants to do. <laughs> yeah. I, Joe, I, I got to tell that I paused before telling the very specific story about that Unearth tour. And by the way, the other band was Animosity just crossed. Like, what a sick lineup, right? Um, and I, I paused before telling it, but I figured like, well, let me just share a very specific story because it was a really powerful learning for me to like you know don't uh, don't project like momentum and growth that is not realistic and fair and nor is it fair for the band right and like and I, I think that like if I were to be a younger manager today I would definitely be um, more careful in certain situations again to or more importantly, get ahead of a band's natural development where you potentially can create a risk for them, right? And fortunately for Unearth, because of who they are, they grew far beyond that and they're still doing what they're doing today, which is awesome. I just didn't serve them well in that specific decision-making process. When you think of all the things that you've done, because there's been so many, I usually say one, but for you, I'll let you like, whether it's two or three, what are your like highlight real moments? Like, like you could literally say this project 
made me feel like I was on top of the world. For you, you had a couple of them. So what were like what were your two or three highlight reel? I was so fucking happy when I achieved this or my band did this or the skateboard league did this or Rob did this. Like, what are your three highlight reel moments? So a massive moment for me uh, that like really just, it filled me up um, in 2019. So we did a partnership with our skateboarding league Vans park series and the Utah sports commission, which is a state run organization where they basically financed our bringing the Vans park series world championship to Salt Lake City. And as part of that deal, there was also a financial contribution between the state and Vans to build a skate park for the community. And so I put this deal together with Vans and the Utah Sports Commission. And Tony Hawk was also a commentator for our skateboarding league. And he was instrumental in some of the promotion that we were doing in and around Salt Lake City. And where we built the skate park and where we have uh, the world championship, it's not in an amazing neighborhood. Like, you know, there's not a lot of opportunities for kids in this part of Salt Lake City. And we literally built a skate park that many of the pros said is one of the best, is the best skate park in the world, right? And so I've been working on like the partnership the whole time. And then we had a ribbon cutting for the event. And I drove to the ribbon cutting with Tony Hawk and when, with the guy who runs Vans Park Series for Vans. And I just hadn't really been thinking about the moment. And we show up and there's like 500 kids, right, at this skate park whose mind is blown by this park that we have given them forever, right? And there's Tony Hawk, and he's skating with the kids. And the reality is, Joe, because of the quality of that park, one of those kids is going to be in the Olympics someday for sure, right? And, like, the fact that I – played a role in doing something for this community that is going to be there for the rest of time. Uh, there was just something about that. and It's not like the biggest deal I've ever done or like the biggest like profile thing, but there was just something about bringing that to those kids and knowing it was going to be there forever. And I did it with fans and Tony Hawk was there, like just floored me. So, I mean, that, and yeah, it's not like the biggest commercial thing I've ever done, but it was, it's the thing that like hit me hardest in the moment. No, I feel like skateboarding is one of these experiences that when people get them at young enough ages, it really does open their entire world. It's so exp- feel like as a kid who had a skateboard, it just takes you places and it gets you out of your head. And, and in the world that you guys have created with the skateboard league and the famous people like Tony Hawk, but even like Rob Deirdrick and all these different people skating and showing kids like, Hey, this is your, this is your base of expression. And then I don't know how many times we've had guests say, well, I found hardcore punk through skating. So like skateboard is skateboarding 
is truly an avenue to so many different ideas. And so if you can give a kid a gift like that, you really are investing in the future generations. Absolutely. Without a doubt. Like it really, um, that, that was a big one for me to be a part of. Um, I would say, you know, beyond that, I think when I look at the music business and, and all that has happened there, um, I die while at that time I wasn't managing Lamb of God. Uh, Larry, my partner, was like seeing artists that like I played a big role in on a platform that they could take ownership of. And I think the show at the Starland in the parking lot where there were 6,000 people there, um, and that was like just something we built, right? Uh, was an incredible, and we, you know, we filmed that show as well too. There's actually amazing video clips of that up on YouTube that I've seen. Uh, like that sounds of the underground was certainly for me, uh, the most amazing experience within my time in music. Um, and I think, you know, beyond that, um, I'm real proud of what I've been able to do, how I've been able to help Haley with her brand, Good Die Young. And I worked at the agency group and I actually was pitching her on like how I can help her with brand deals. Right. And Haley's like, I don't care about doing brand deals. Here's what I know. Like, here's what I'm excited about. I want to build a brand, a hair brand that is like for us, by us. Every hair coloring brand, every hair brand out there, like it's for people that are so much older. I want to, I want to own something for my community. And like from having that first conversation with her to seven years later, she's got a corporate headquarters in Nashville. The business is killing it. I still sit on the board. That journey from I have an idea to helping her every way I could, every step the business is seven years later, that process is just one big highlight for me. I mean, it's, it's not only what's cool is so many times in this story, you're not saying, well, I saw an opportunity where I could, you know, make enough money to buy a Porsche. <laughs> you're advancing other people. You're advancing ideas from other people and you're creating opportunities where people's brands become reality. And I think that that just has a huge um, impact on what these people can do as humans. I mean, obviously, band people are not limited, but you having the, the keys to the box to the relationships or learning how to get these um, these funds together so these things can happen you really do utilize all of your contacts and you're doing it for the good of the people around you. And I know that the same amount of contacts that you have that can't do what you do because they won't make money from it or something, you know, like, and, and so I think it's a testament to you seeing the intrinsic value to all this and you seeing the task completion or the growth of either a person or just getting the excitement of now you're on a board with a brand like good, you know, like with a good diet, you know, like you're on a board and here's, this all comes from saying, yeah, you know what? 
you know, uh, I'm going to take a chance with this. Like yeah. you took a chance with all of this. Yeah, for sure. It, it's, it's, it's unreal, man. And, and I mean, it comes a long way from that $5,000 check your father gave you and your dad being like, I don't know what's wrong with this fucking kid. How can he doesn't want to work? And instead you kind of turn it to hands in so many pots. I love that you're now having the opportunity to see a lot of fruits from seeds that you've sown. I mean, whether it's just seeing Anthony grow to being the CEO of Royalty Exchange or yeah. watching Biggie, like you have mentored and created an entire generation of people that are now doing the same thing. And I think that it's important as we start talking to the end of this podcast that one of the things that you've done to maintain your serenity is BJJ. And I think that I said to you on the mats, this is our golf. This is our culture's <laughs> golf. Yeah. Like, fuck me out of there. Like, there has to be so much swirling through your head. And I know for me, and you've been a Jared Shat, when we bow in on the mat, yeah. my brain goes blank and I'm in jujitsu world. Straight up. It's so meditative to be in a role. And much of what I can do now is only because I have that mat time. And I have that time where I'm sweating to just kind of get those. It's cathartic and it's refreshing physically. And it does something even 10 times more mentally. Without a doubt. It, the way I feel when I'm done training is I have like a clarity in my brain and a state of being that I can't get from doing anything else, right? Like therapy, meditation, yoga, what? Like, and it's all great, but there is something that BJJ does to me mentally and physically as well too. But the mental piece of it is so incredibly powerful that if people could really understand the mental benefits of doing it, so many more people would do it. I mean, it's, it's the hardest thing I've ever done in my life for sure. You know, I, I turned 51 in December and I train with a bunch of fucking animals, uh, much like yourself. And, um, it's really hard and it's really uncomfortable. Um, I found out yesterday that like, I've got a medial meniscus tear in my knee and thank God, like my doctor actually trains BJJ. And like I said to him, I'm like, look, I, I'm able to train with it. Like, I, I don't want to get operated on right now because I don't want to not be able to train. And like, it means that much to me. Like, no matter what is happening in my life, I'm showing up three times a week, no matter where I'm at, right? Like when I'm in New York, I'll train at Clockwork, right? When I'm in Philly, I'll train at BJJ United. Like, and, they, you know, and there have thankfully been schools that have been so amazing to me when I've traveled, uh, I don't care where I'm at, like three times a week, it's got to happen. Uh, and there have been so many incredible experiences of growth through it all. You know, I, I was able to compete once right before the pandemic hit. And the way I felt before competing, like I couldn't believe that like, it, you know, 50 years old, I could be that wound up about something, right? And like, yeah, it just... It just creates opportunities for learning that are endless. Like there are so many parallels with what happens on the mat and what happens in life. And like, man, 
I, I think Joe, the ability for me to become grounded and be able to manage states of extreme discomfort has had a profound impact on how I handle my business. Without jujitsu and without that lesson, without that shoulder in your face, and you're either going to learn to deal with the man, the, the, the weight of this man's shoulder in your face, or you're going to learn to problem solve to get out. Yeah. That translates into every hard thing that I have to do at work with the shows, with everything. And, and, and it's so crazy that the only way to get that lesson is to have someone smash you in the fucking face yeah. and just deal with what, what is right in front of you. And um, yeah. I, 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 I'm so glad that you got the same lessons because everything changed for me once I started putting those pieces together. Um, as we wrap this up, I have to wonder if you have like simple advice or things that you like to impart on people after hearing your whole story. And I just appreciate what you've done, the legacies that you've created in so many different industries, the people that you have put on to pass that are now continuing to do the good work. And I just appreciate you as a friend and as a mentor and as someone that I can look to and go, look what he did. Look at his timeline. I mean, in this timeline, the ball started rolling 20 years ago. You know, like this is a thing that people need to understand is, this isn't like, well, I started at 16 and I grinded for 30 years. Like you've told a great story of ups and downs and failures and not always knowing where you wanted to go. And, and, and it's amazing, man. And I just appreciate you. And I just thank you for everything that you've done and the wheels that you put in the motion that carry so many of us now. I thank you so much for having me on the podcast. And look, Joe, I, I, the only thing that I your podcast is now the platform for this. You know, when I, when I was in my early twenties and I absolutely hated what I was doing with my life, with my business, with my work, I fluked into a conversation with a guy in a warehouse that gave me just enough of an opening that I was able to get in there and change my life and realize that no matter what happens with me, I'm going to work on shit that I'm excited about, no matter what, period, right? And I think what's awesome about your platform is you're able to like create access for these kind of stories with your community all the time. And so I guess the only thing I would just say, man, like, you know, there is nobody that is in your community that is like any like better equipped for success people because of your platform can understand well like shit like if this random guy from just outside of northeast philadelphia can have some success doing shit he likes like why can't i and that's just that's the truth man like everybody everybody can find and when i say success that just means doing shit you're excited about doing that makes you feel fulfilled. There's no excuse for not everybody having the shot to do it. It may not come immediately. It may take longer. It may be a part of your existence. But if you're struggling, like just you know, get yourself on a path to try. 
No, I, I couldn't say it better. That's a huge part of why this podcast and platform is constantly trying to showcase the how people did this, why do this. And so, like, I'm so glad that you touched on this in your closing thoughts. Um, we'll link on our show page a way to get a hold of Paul. Yeah. And you can find him on LinkedIn. You can find him in the background of so many fucking things that I want you to realize there is always something going on where people are looking to continue our culture in so many different avenues. And Paul, your story and the fight that you put up and the, and the ways that you put people in motion to continue is on is going to be constantly seen. And if it's not seen as, oh, that was Paul's touch, fuck it, even better. You put the ball in motion and these guys are running with it. And I just thank you for all the effort. I thank you for the positivity and thank you for your story. Appreciate you. Man, Paul's story is absolutely fucking incredible. I hope that you find some inspiration, some guidance, and a few lessons on how to grind, work your way up the ladder, and never stop. In fact, I, I don't think that guy's ever going to stop. It's incredible all that he achieved and all that he's still pressing himself forward with. We're going to have some links in the TIHCpodcast.com if you want to check them out. Thank you for listening. Thank you for the patience. I hope you guys enjoyed last week's episode. I heard a few good things about it. going to try to drop some more stuff like that on our Patreon, but probably not in a two-hour ravine. But that's kind of what I plan on doing. And I've got a few ideas, and I've got a few hours recorded, and I'm going to start dropping that. Thank you for all the support. And I can't wait for next week. Take care.